Today's episode of No Dunks is presented by the Salvation Army. Your donations can help those affected by COVID-19 find help and hope. To give, ask your smart speaker to make a donation to the Salvation Army or make your gift at SalvationArmyUSA.org. Welcome to another classic episode of No Dunks. I'm Trey Kirby, and on today's one-on-one episode, we got Skeets on the line. We've got Lee on the line, and JD is making the magic happen. No task today, but we've got a very special guest. He's our colleague here at The Athletic. He wrote the world's most-read English-language NBA article of 2016. Lindsey Hunter once wanted to fight him, but most importantly today, he's the author of the excellent new book, The Victory Machine. The making and unmaking of the Warriors dynasty. We got a hater in the house. Ethan Sherwood Strauss, <laughs> thank you for joining us. So many references already. And uh, sad to say, I think I would have lost that fight. That guy played some tenacious defense back in the day. He really did. <laughs> oh, no doubt. Lindsey Hunter gets after it. Uh, maybe we'll talk a little Lindsey Hunter later. But uh, most importantly, <laughs> I know you're at home uh, with your family. Everybody's staying safe, staying sane out there. Everybody's staying, staying safe at least. Sanity, we'll, we'll, we'll see about it. I mean, it, it's weird how it's weird how quickly weird becomes normal. Um, and yeah, it's uh, I can't complain. I mean, I could complain, but <laughs> you're not supposed to. That's that's how I feel about it. Yeah, I think you're probably right on that one. But I mean, I'm not complaining because. If you're going to have a quarantine, it's nice to have an incredible book to read. So, I mean, thank Boom. you to that and thank you for the timing. They basically carried a week for me. What has the response to the book been like? You wrote a book that basically deals with the impact of social media, and now you've got all the time in the world to look at social media. <laughs> yeah, I try to filter through it a little bit. The book got more of a reaction than I thought it would, where suddenly I'm seeing that it's being argued about on first take and shows like that. And I try to filter it out a bit when I, I, I had some friends say, oh, Jay Williams was talking smack or uh, something to, of, of that nature. Sometimes I'll ask for a summary, but I tend not to chase it down just because I'm trying to heed some of the warnings from my own book. Mm. And that if I really get into it, um, then I am being foolish. Uh, I'm going against my very own advice. So I'm trying to be Zen about it. I'm happy though. Mostly I think, you know, pretty positive. Uh, some controversy, I think mostly based on the excerpts and we'll see from here. I'm happy. I've also noticed uh, that you did an audiobook version of this. I've only read the book, but I'm curious what it's like. What's it like to do an audiobook? Are you trying to come up with voices for other people? Are you trying to throw on a Kevin Durant voice? Well, first I was trying to do a British septuagenarian voice uh, just because that seems to be the thing that you do or maybe even kick it up a level for the age and, and do a David Attenborough. Um, but no, they didn't, they didn't let me do that. In, in a way, just because I had seen the example of Ronan Farrow and how he was going all out with his audio book doing Hungarian imitations, I think I kind of do a half imitation for some people. I just do how they sound in my head and not necessarily a perfect imitation. You know, Kevin Durant's got kind of a low sort of like, you know, it's not, it's not some impeccable Kevin Durant, but that's how Kevin Durant sounds 
in my head and a little similar for some of the other characters uh there's a bogut imitation i have it's not an australian accent but it's just what bogut sounds like in my head <laughs> hang on Peter hang on Gore. hang on if he's not australian <laughs> how does andrew bogut sound <laughs> <laughs> well in a weird way like your your voice sounds more like a classic australian accent right, than, uh, right. than andrew than andrew's voice and i don't know right. how to explain what that is mm. but it, it's almost like he spent so much time in the states in a four yeah. uh, formative time of his life that a bit of an edge was taken off of it um right, right. and so yeah i so i there's a bit of a there's a bit of a bogut goober is from boston thick boston accent the warriors <laughs> co-owner so none of these are fully committed to but they're almost half committed to and i have no idea if that's the right way to do things but that's when it ended up happening I think that's the perfect way to do it. Always half-ass it. That's my oh, yeah. go-to strategy in life. But we'll get into the book a little bit. Um, the, the first few chapters, you're really setting the scene. You're showing us how the dynasty was truly made. And to me, there are three big moves that happened that have nothing to do with basketball on the court, really. Joe Lacob takes over, Bob Myers takes over, and Steve Kerr takes over. You're basically refreshing a, a complete front office, a complete power structure. What What move there is the biggest impact for the Warriors? Because, I mean... Obviously, they're all working together and they're all forming the identity together. But, I mean, each guy really brings their own thing, their own vision to the table. And, and as we know, they got to work together in perfect, uh, in perfect concert. And that's not always the case. So what to you is the reason that the Warriors were even able to get this thing started heading down the right path? I think the Joe Lacob team sale is the most important one. And it's funny. I... I, I... I'm curious how he might receive this book because on the one hand, I think it gives him far more credit than anybody else has given him. Um, and I state that really, I mean, the ownership change was massive. Incompetent ownership, that pressure from the top, uh, it, it, it is the most important thing for a franchise. Uh, but I also portray him as a total asshole. So I, I'm not <laughs> sure... I'm not sure. I mean, maybe, maybe he's into that. I have, I have no idea. Uh, in the past, he has enjoyed a certain Daniel Plainview uh, depiction of himself. Uh, but yeah, I see that as the most important. And those others, it's all of it coalescing. And obviously, it merges with the players. But in many ways, um, I wasn't just trying to write this from more of a front office perspective because I was trying to woo all the Jerry Krause fans out there in the world. Um, it's also just because we have written so much about the Warriors, about the players, and it seemed like it was territory that had been less explored. So it made sense to go in that direction. Has uh, anyone from the Warriors organization, be it anyone you know in the front office, any sort of coaches, any players, has anyone reached out to you about the book and yeah, you know, yes. either positively or negatively? Uh, positively and negatively, um, okay. people in the front office don't like the suggestion that Steph was shopped around, and mm. that might be a bit of a semantic difference where, yeah, he's, he was brought up in trade calls, but we wouldn't say he's shopped around, you know? Right. Like, their version of shopped around uh, is more definitive. It's maybe more of a, oh, come and get him, everybody. You know, Steph Curry, come and get him. Um, but other GMs, multiple GMs, uh, have said he was shopped around, he was shopped around, he was shopped around. So, uh, that was one point of contention and, uh, you know, a, a couple of players have reached out about it. Um, but it's mostly based off the excerpts, you know, people, yeah. people read the excerpts and they get an opinion based on the excerpts. Um, and they start that discussion. I haven't, I haven't had a discussion with anybody about a close read of the entire thing yet. Okay. 
I think the stuff thing is interesting, too, because talking with the trades and stuff, one of the questions you're asking very early on in the book is, was the Warriors dynasty top-down planning or was it luck? And it's really hard to separate the two of them because, I mean, if Curry, like you say in the book, he's almost sh- uh, shipped to the Bucks. they look at his medical issues and say, hey, he's got to have surgery. He has surgery, and things are basically fine for Steph Curry after then, and the Warriors become the Warriors. That being said, they had to have the ideas and the plans in place to be able to lure Kevin Durant. Where do you ultimately fall on the planning versus luck spectrum? Um, I will say a little, okay, I think majority skill or competence um, with a heavy dose of luck, but there's that cliche that you make your own luck. Um, and suddenly when you have a, a vision, you have competent people in place, you open yourself up to opportunities and you start realizing potential that you didn't even know was there. So I think that's more of the story, but it's a story that requires a lot of luck. And I think that the Joe Lacob perspective, though, is that even if these moves had gone a different way, even if the road had forked in a different direction, his attitude is we're so organizationally awesome that we would have been great anyway, which that's his view. I, I don't totally agree with that, but that, that would probably be the Lacobian view of things. Yeah, it's certainly harder to imagine a dynasty built around the backcourt of Monte Ellis and Clay Thompson than Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. Might have been a little I, bit more fun, though. I don't know. That was a, I will a say, pretty it crazy for a good book. Monte on that, yeah, in the finals. <laughs> It would have been. I don't. I don't think Monte though would have been long for the Warriors, regardless of what they did with Steph. Just because, man, they did really, really did not like him. <laughs> they did not like him. The new ownership group, whatever Monte did, he did not endear himself uh, to them interpersonally. So I think that was only a matter of time, regardless of what happened with Steph. With Steph. Even if he is in trade packages, even if it's not the Warriors calling and saying, hey, we're, we're shopping Steph Curry here. If they're accepting calls, he's in the rumor mill. And that can, I mean, that can jeopardize a player's relationship with the team instantly. That didn't happen with Steph Curry. You think that's part of the reason we're seeing a little bit of a pushback now just to keep that relationship strong? Or is this the kind of thing that just wouldn't phase Steph? Because there seem to be so many times throughout this book, throughout this run the Warriors had, where he is one of the few guys who's able to be a superstar and put his needs far behind the needs of the team. I mean, honestly, it shouldn't phase Steph. I mean, we, we have to remember this isn't, this isn't like other MVPs where they were on this obvious trajectory from the moment they entered the league. Um, his ankle injury was pretty severe. Nobody knew how that surgery would work out. Um, he was a great shooter, but there were questions about everything else, and the team wasn't doing very well. Uh, the Warriors would have been very odd to have not been exploring these options back in 2011, 2012. Um, it's just that now it seems like that's so insane, but back then it just seemed like a very logical thing to do. It, se- it seems crazy. One of those trade deals was apparently, according to your book, Steph and Clay for Chris Paul, and, and Chris Paul basically told the Warriors... If you trade for me, I'm not sticking around. I mean, I'd heard, and I think it had been out there, that the Bucks, the Bucks deal was an option, and and that, and you know, they they ultimately settled on Monte Ellis, Milwaukee. But I hadn't heard that one before about um, Chris Paul and and you know coming to the Warriors. Where where did that um, come from for you? Where did that information uh, come about? Well, I can't reveal that part exactly, but what I can say is that it's the type of thing that where I'm sure if somebody had run that by me at the time. I would have said, yeah, do it. 
Like get right. Chris Paul, you know, like Clay. Who was Clay Thompson? He was a he was a late lottery pick um, out of a, a school in the Northwest. Um, Steph, you had the aforementioned issues, and Chris Paul is the best point guard in the NBA. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. the Warriors hadn't had a player of that caliber. Uh, God, I don't even know. Run TMC. If we're going back to maybe Chris mm-hmm. Mullen. Um, you know, Chris Mullen was first team All NBA, so yeah. uh, maybe I'm skipping over or missing somebody. Well, but Baron Davis was good, but not not at yeah, that Bar- level. Yeah, Baron Davis guard. was yeah selectively great, where yeah. you know he just burst on to the playoff scene again after you know having some great moments with the Hornets. But yeah, the run in uh, 2007 was fantastic, but it wasn't he wasn't Chris Paul, right? Yeah, and so. Yeah, that's that's the type of thing where that sounds crazy. Like they would have demolished everything if it had gone that route, and they'd gotten it done with Dell Demps and whatnot. But um, yeah, back then that that's that would have seemed like a no brainer. Hmm. Yeah, there are so many sliding door moments like that that you mentioned throughout the book. I like I had forgotten that the Warriors were very gung ho on trying to bring DeAndre Jordan in, and like that completely changes the way that they build the team. Or if Dan Van Gundy actually gets hired by the Warriors. That completely yeah. changes the team, but yeah. none of that that's who That's who they wanted, by the way. I mean, they went hard trying to get Stan Van Gundy. That was their first choice over Steve Kerr, and I don't think that would have been the right choice as much as I love Stan Van Gundy. I think it would have been too much of a whiplash effect from players coach Mark Jackson to hard-ass SVG, um, and Kerr, it was just the right it was the right middle ground between those two options. And so that was another one where maybe they lucked into what they needed. Yeah, because in basically no time at all, the Warriors win a championship. They've got 73 wins during the regular season. They've got Steph Curry, an MVP, and a reigning unanimous MVP, and they're back in the finals. And then Under Armour has basically their worst month ever as a company. The Chef Curry 2 comes out, (laughs) it gets roasted, the Warriors blow the 3-1 lead, and Kevin Durant, a Nike pitch man, comes to Golden State. How much of an L was this in 2016 for Under Armour? Because, I mean, they were ascendant at that time. That's when you're writing the most read English language article in the entire world. <laughs> yeah, um, they they were ascendant, and this was, I mean, they completely deflated them. And I, I think I wondered at various points of their decline, um, you know they'll they'll turn it around or they'll find somebody else. I always wondered when are they going to get the next basketball player to build around because Nike had its stable of signature athletes, but it never really happened. Um, they were just rising like a rocket ship, legitimately threatening Nike, and that's completely fallen apart. I mean, Kevin Plank, the CEO, has stepped down, um, and it's crazy to think about just how the sneaker industry operates and how a lot of what happens billions and billions of dollars is determined by just dudes in their 20s on a basketball court and how they perform i mean it's absolutely insane that michael jordan was just essential to making nike one of the biggest corporations on earth and if he had gotten hurt you know, if, I think I said in the book, if Bill Embiid had hip-checked him and he tears his knee, then that never happens. And Nike is just, I don't know, maybe it's just one of the one of the sneaker companies. Um, it's insane that billions are on the line. And I do believe that by effectively being a good teammate and accepting Kevin Durant onto the Warriors and being part of the recruitment, 
Um, that knocked Steph out of the MVP races, and I think that probably lost billions of dollars for Under Armour. I really yeah. do believe that. Well, yeah, I think that's absolutely true, and I think that that's such a unique thing to Steph that he doesn't care at all about, apparently, shoe sales, apparently uh, angering his endorsing, like, the partners at his in, at his endorsements, or even being in the MVP race. That, you know, we see so much throughout this book of Kevin Durant being seeming insecure or jealous towards Steph Curry, but it rarely feels the same way going back. How did Steph feel about all this kind of stuff? Because... I mean, he's given up major, you know, major clout by saying, yeah, sure, we'll let Nike come in here and get a guy. We'll let another MVP come in here and get a guy. But to, for, to his credit, he's just happy to, happy to do what's best for actually getting rings. Well, I think we all anchor our, our identity around something. And I think part of Steph's identity is anchored around being the good soldier. Um, and so I don't think it was easy necessarily to make those sacrifices, but there is a sense of this is what I have to do. It's for the greater good. Um, and I remember talking, I mean, this isn't in the book, but I remember talking to his family after the last championship they won about if he cared about finals MVP. And they, they're just really insistent that it's just his philosophy is stack as many rings as possible. That's, that's the philosophy. How, whatever it takes to get there, that's the right decision. Um, I don't think it's easy. I mean, it's one thing to do the sacrifice hypothetically, and it's another thing to actually do the sacrifice. But uh, that's that's what it's about. I think for Kevin Durant, it's a little bit different. The goal is to be the greatest basketball player on earth and to be recognized as that. And mm -hmm. apparently that's not one-to-one -one with stacking rings, at least not anymore under these hmm. modern circumstances. Yeah, and it's interesting too because – Curry is in the Dwayne Wade situation, right? He's already got one title that he won before LeBron or Kevin Durant showing up. Steph already obviously has the couple MVPs, whereas KD is coming in. He's got an MVP, but he doesn't have the rings, just like LeBron was coming to Dwayne Wade. It's certainly easier to take a back seat if you've already got a championship and some MVPs in your back pocket. Uh, nonetheless, Durant finally shows up in Golden State. You say, as you say, Steph Curry is no longer the story. So... Nike has to be thrilled. Did they have a huge influence on KD's decision here? Or is there still some factoring into it? Because I remember when he went, he was you know, fascinated by the team-first aspect of the Warriors. And as you say, he liked the idea that Steve Kerr uh, puts out there, that success can actually be enjoyed. So, I mean, uh, it definitely feels a little bit, uh, you know, Nike over Under Armour to me. And it definitely feels a little bit this is a perfect basketball situation. But there seems to be a lot of things pulling at Durant there. Yeah. Um, I don't think it can be definitively proved that Nike um, pushed Kevin Durant in any direction. I just know that they really loved the decision he made. <laughs> they were sure. very excited about it. They were in the front row of his press conference in Oakland, uh, his introductory press conference, uh, that you could see Lynn Merritt around Kevin Durant a lot in the playoffs, Lynn Merritt, Nike executive, and that Nike officials knew well ahead of time before it was public that Kevin Durant had chosen the Warriors. I know that much. Um, that's where I first was hearing that it was done when it happened. So, you know, I don't know if any of this is 
completely formalized. Like, I don't think Lynn Merritt is sending an email to Kevin Durant that says, gee, you should really join the Warriors. That would be <laughs> great, and it would Urgent. really help your brand. Urgent, join the Warriors. But, yeah, maybe the very charismatic Lynn Merritt, you know, wraps his arm around Kevin Durant's shoulder and says, look, you know, this could all be yours. You know, this could, you, you felt second place for a while. Maybe this is the thing that really mm-hmm. vaults you up there because when it comes to Nike, the difference between being in the number one spot and the number two spot is a vast chasm, vast chasm. Right. They typically are marketing one guy, one guy for each sport. And you are incredibly famous. If you're that guy, you're transcendent. Um, and that's, I think he always felt that he was just, he was, that, that, that status was just eluding him. And it would have made sense that making this bold move to the Warriors might've gotten it for him, but it didn't, it didn't work that way. That's exactly right. Durant is in tow. It brings us to the biggest, Mm -hmm. the best chapter in the book, KD and me, which starts with an absolutely classic exchange. You text KD asking (laughs) for his input. On the book, and he just responds, fuck you, fuck your sources and your book. How much money are you paying me for my chapter? You say, how much do you think it's worth? Katie says, not enough. Classic. <laughs> There's more classic aspects. I didn't include it uh, exactly because it didn't totally fit. But the exchange actually started out with, uh, eat a dick, Ethan. I don't, <laughs> I don't hate you, though. <laughs> oh, respect. Okay, that's something that I was wondering throughout this. There are so many times when it feels like KD could easily blow you off, give you the cold shoulder, but he always wants to talk. So, like, do you think he liked you? Like, do you think he liked having the back and forth with you, or what really drew him to keep I, confronting you about stuff? I don't think I don't think he liked me, but he does like to talk. And yeah. so, if you're just standing in front of him, and maybe he doesn't like you you're still somebody who could absorb whatever he's saying. And mm. so I think that's what it, I think this is what it was. But then when it comes to liking or not liking, to be clear about it, I, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who might dislike me on my own merits, but what we're really talking <laughs> about is not liking what I'm saying about him. Sure. Right. Yeah. It's not, it's not really about, he doesn't, he doesn't really know. He doesn't really know me. He doesn't really know the intric- uh, the intricacies of my life. And maybe he thin sliced <laughs> it to quote Malcolm Gladwell. And he saw enough <laughs> to know I'm trash. I don't, I don't know, but like, let's face it. I would have a far, I'd have a far easier dynamic with him or I would have if it was just endless praise all the time um, versus some of the stuff that I did right. So, uh, and why do you say that? Have you seen, I know you're not going to name names by any means, but are there other reporters that sort of approach Katie like that? You know, sort of with the oven mitts and, hey, you're great, you're the best, you're, you're the uh, GOAT, and he's well, sort of more receptive to that? Well, I, I think, hmm. It's a good question. I mean, there are a variety of different ways to approach him. There are a variety of different ways to get stories. I don't want to insinuate that people writing more positive stories aren't doing their jobs. I think mm-hmm. that they're often just doing a different kind of job, um, and they're using a different kind of access. It's just It just so happens that my job is often one where sometimes I'm – the bad guy and i have to say that this is what's going on i mean the article that really angered him was uh the one where i said when i talked to everybody with the warriors uh everybody is saying they think he's gone or at the very best they don't know um that's just an article that 
fell on me to write. We talked about it at The Athletic, you know, who's going to write this, who's going to say this, and, you know, I was like, okay, I'll put my head in the buzzsaw. Uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll do it. Um, so it's just, I, I feel like it's just a matter of fitting in to whatever your role is, and, and that's that's my particular that's my particular role. But, you know, to be clear with KD, there have been writers who have criticized him, and he's had a back and forth and, mm-hmm. and, and reconciled and whatnot, and such things do happen in the NBA. I've certainly had that with players where I pissed them off and then things got better uh, later on. I was just thinking uh, with the audio version, you could have texted him back and asked him to like leave a voicemail. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Can you record this on QuickTime? Yeah. Sure. I mean, you said, you said he said he doesn't hate you. So maybe it's like, yeah. <laughs> Kevin, would you mind just uh, verbally abusing me down the I phone? Just so I, can... I, just, I just need the favor. Just one favor yeah. for your old buddy, for your old were pal. You, were you ever afraid Ethan, like after that incident, like where, you know, he's calling you out in the press conference and it's, I'm sure a little awkward, no doubt. Um, but like, were you ever, I don't know, maybe it's a weird question, but were you ever like, oh, maybe I don't want to be in there or around him? <laughs> like, like, like I'm going to catch a haymaker, you mean? Yeah, like that something. kind of thing? <laughs> no, you know, honestly, the thing that's more terrifying is just being in uh, what I call the take zone and just having <laughs> just a bunch of text messages and people on TV arguing about whether you're bad at your job. And I mean, that, that sort of stuff is, is far scarier. I mean, there's, to me, it's, it's just more the social awkwardness. Like when you, mm-hmm. when you know you're the guy in the locker room and people are looking at you and seeing what's going to happen. I mean, that, yeah. that's more what it is. It never occurred to me that anything physical might happen. I mean, I've had situations where uh, maybe there was a little bit more of that in the past, but I just don't, I still think that's the way Kevin handles things. I maybe maybe I'm naive, but I, that just never occurred to me. Well, this all comes obviously near the end of KD's time with the Warriors, but I'm a little curious what it was like when he first showed up in Golden State. Because coming from OKC, they were very tight-lipped, very controlled with the media, whereas the Warriors were media savvy. So you could, you know, and they were just very open at all times to kind of you know giving interviews and doing little pieces here and there. You could see that there may eventually be some sort of loggerheads between a guy who was brought up staying away from the media versus a team that became famous while they were doing very well with media. Was the was there any sort of awkwardness there when KD first came into a, a more open place? I don't think it was awkwardness. I think there was a there was a honeymoon period and mm-hmm. um I mean he came in with a little bit of a uh, a sense that the the media was on him and there was some wariness about it. But not not so much the local media. Um, and I think he was really enjoying being able to spread his wings and relax. And they would just pound Coors Lights after every, after every game. And Katie would just chug a Coors Light and then let out a huge burp. And then he would start the (laughs) scrum interview on the road. And that was the type of thing that you just didn't do in Oklahoma City. But the Warriors had a little bit of a beer culture going. And as part of the let's have everybody have fun. And the coaches all had just tons of Modellos in the in in the um, in the water cooler that they would drag around on the road. And I mean, I have to admit that uh, myself and Anthony Slater sometimes on the road uh, after after a game, after everybody would leave, I would do I would do Slater's podcast in the road locker room and we would mm-hmm. just, you know, drink the leftover Modellos while doing the podcast. <laughs> 
<laughs> the warm scraps uh, of the uh, of the of the Warriors party bus. Um, but yeah, it was just a, a totally different environment from OKC, and I think at least at the beginning that was refreshing to him, and not just because uh, it's the coldest beer around. Because <laughs> the mountains are so blue. The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suit, or tuxedo for their big day. As you know, the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine, and they weren't alone in their frustration. These are one-star reviews from competitor tux shops. Listen to these turds. First one reads, go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible, unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. Ayo! Second one, even worse. Quote, we felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy. We were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. Smart. What I love about the Black Tux is that they have an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. I buy everything online. Everything. Gazebos, gas fireplaces, and suits. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can get the feel, that fit and quality before you commit. And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it out one last time. Smart service here, boys. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. So let's save you some money. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, right reasons, right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with the code DUNKS. That's theblacktux.com code DUNKS for a cool 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux. Formal wear for the moment. Did I say that like a question? Let me say it like a statement. The Black Tux. Formal wear for the moment. I liked it more as a question. One of the big moments that everybody remembers from last season is KD and Draymond fighting on the sidelines during the Clippers game. You call this a point of demarcation in the book. Now, just this week, Draymond Green has been talking on uninterrupted, saying that if Durant had come out and told the team right away that he was leaving, or I suppose told the team that he was going to be back for the next season, it would have been okay. Things would, the, there would have been so little tension uh, amongst the Warriors. Do you do you really buy that, or was even if we knew Durant was leaving, even if Draymond Green knew Durant was leaving, how is that still not going to play a factor at some point? Yeah, I keep thinking about it ever since he said it because he was saying it and other guys were saying it at the time back then. And I've been wondering about it because it's strange because why would that have actually improved things necessarily? It would have gotten out. Um, he would have been asked about it. People would say, God, that's kind of weird that you're leaving. Why are you leaving? He doesn't seem to have the personality to really carry that through for the rest of the season. Um, but what I think it's about, if I'm to just theorize, um, I think they just wanted a sense that they mattered more than everybody else as teammates. Mm -hmm. And if you take your teammates aside and you tell them something that you haven't told the world yet, um, then there is a sense of there's respect there. And I feel, I don't feel, I know that there was a sense that he had really drifted and just become his own thing outside of the team 
um, in that last season. And so maybe what Draymond wanted was just was just that. And maybe he just wanted clarity um, because it was the sense of he's leaving, but he's not saying it and he's not spelling it out. And that's putting this whole situation in limbo um, and just not knowing what he was going to bring every night or throughout the playoff run because of that. So I, I also think as much as Draymond says that it's, you know, about not declaring his intentions. I mean, if he was just happy-go-lucky every day, I think that would it would have been fine if he was leaving it up in the air. I think that would have so, been fine. But you, you're saying that Draymond, in his defense, was saying this stuff throughout the season with Katie, yes. and and he's not just saying this because the last dance is on and it's like a rematch. No, 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 <laughs> okay. no. He cool. was no, he was saying all of that. I mean, yeah. I think that had a lot to do with why the blow-up happened. Um, and he wasn't the only one saying it. There were other players who felt that way at that time. There's something um, you slipped in there that uh, you just made me think of. I mean, is all of this avoided if if Katie's just a cool hang? Because it just yeah. sounds like he's not. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean that's that that's really I think that's a huge part. Just and hey, he feels however he feels. Yeah. Um, but the, it was the constant misery. <laughs> it was the right. constant misery that combined black, with like a limbo. little cloud following him around or something. Like yeah. That. yeah. But just but being so incredible at basketball that you just have to deal with it yeah. and he could just turn it on and he could go i mean that clipper series is ridiculous where he goes from yeah. not trying really let's face it not yeah. not actually to coming up with these weird just genius sounding reasons for why he wasn't shooting um and saying that it was top locking and you know wooing us with jargon to Actually, uh, screw all this top locking. I'm going to score 50 points <laughs> because it turns out these guys are way shorter than me. Um, but, yeah, you just had to deal with it because he, he's a basketball genius. I think some of the, 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 the change in KD really plays out in his relationship with Steve Kerr throughout the book because, like you're saying, part of the reason – Durant was lured to Golden State was seeing Kerr and the assistant coaches drinking beer after an all-star game. He loved the joyful ways. He loved the team basketball. And by the time he's ready to leave, all of those things are the things he's basically undermining in the press. How did this go south so quickly with Kerr? Because Kerr seems like the kind of guy who has done a really good job throughout his career of keeping people on the same page. Yeah, it, I don't know if it went quickly. It was starting to go in that direction in the season before the last one because he wasn't fulfilled by winning that first championship. And if you remember, Steve Kerr had a dinner with him to try to get him back um, and bring him back into the fold. So you're starting to see it. It was starting to happen. And I don't know if whatever happened had more to do with Kerr or just more to do with how... Durant at a certain point felt like he was getting less from the Warriors than the Warriors were getting from him. Mm. And if we were to be completely reductive about what happened, I think that is the simplest explanation. Why did he leave? He wasn't getting as much from the Warriors situation as the Warriors were getting Mm. from him. I think that's it. Yeah, I can definitely see that being the case. And it it really shines a light on the playoffs because like you're saying in that Rocket series, you know, he went from not given the full effort in the early games to by the time he got hurt against the Rockets, I think he was probably going to be establishing himself as probably the best player in the game. Like his stats throughout the playoffs are incredible. 32, 5, 5, a steal, a block, 50, 40, 90. LeBron James is not in the playoffs for the first time in forever. If he doesn't get hurt, 
Is it out of the realm of possibility that the Warriors win a third straight championship? He gets a third straight finals MVP. He is considered the best player in the game. And we're talking about him as still a Warrior now. Is that possible? I mean, it it seemed pretty set in stone that he was gone. But, I mean, I could see us talking about him as the best player in the game. And if he had come sure. back and been kind of a superstar Willis Reed, I, I just remember... Uh, it was so cinematic when he returned. And then the Warriors just boom, 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 three after three after three in that in that game uh, in that game five. No, we were there. We uh, were in the Air Canada Center. Did you okay did, yeah. did, did you did you sense how palpably completely fatalistically defeatistly nervous uh the canadian the canadian crowd was because that was something that was just amazing to me i just well, Ethan, i remember i, I went the canadian crowd i know i know <laughs> yeah i was freaking out i was like oh my god like he's back he's a killer they're the warriors once again and like well that was fun yeah, we had yeah. a cool lead yeah they they dangled it you know in front of you only to snatch it away i remember yeah. Um, I think I went, uh, God, was it in the, there was some break in the action where I used the restroom and the, the other Raptors fans are there and they're talking and it was like, well, we're going to lose again, boys. Uh, there's a reason that Toronto <laughs> hasn't won a championship in over 40 years. Yeah. It just, it was like, it was just amazing to see, uh, to see, yep, yep. This is, this is how it's going to go. The Warriors are back. We're not winning another game of the series, but then of course the, gruesome injury happened and yeah. things turned and then clay <laughs> i don't want to take i don't want to take anything away from the raptors though they no. were incredible in that series they kept coming just so much veteran savvy shot making the whole deal so they they deserve they deserve that championship i do want to say that did durant coming back do you think that was influenced a lot by the narrative like you're saying the willis reed moment to come back and try and save the series try and save a championship um it's a good question because we never knew exactly what he was risking medically. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we ever really will. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a tantalizing trap we had all set for him collectively. I can say that much. That's for sure. That um, we had made so much of the conversation about Kevin Durant about – as Bob Meyer said that night about the people who take hits at him and criticize him and rip him. But I was thinking to myself, and I wrote in the book, was this a trap? Was this a praise trap we all lured for him collectively that, <laughs> hey, Kevin, if you come back and if you win the big one, you know, injured, we're going to, you know, we're going to love you. We're going to celebrate you, you know, that we had kind of set this trap for him. And beyond, he probably just wanted to also compete and you see other people playing um, and whatnot. But yeah, it was really the stage was set for him to be the hero. We had rolled the red carpet out. I think you guys remember what the scene was like when he entered the arena, oh, just yeah. the hushed oh, yeah. tones and the flashbulbs. I mean, he was the focus of everything that night, and that's got to be intoxicating and hard to resist. And the kind of thing when we're seeing this Jordan documentary when he's being asked, what would you risk, you know, if the headache could kill you with a 10% chance, how bad's the fucking headache? Um, I mean, that was, that's, that was a situation like that where athletes tend to be optimists in many ways and maybe the feeling was this is too good to pass up well that's absolutely right especially because like you mentioned you know durant is was getting killed on twitter to the point where steve kerr considers bringing in random people from twitter so that kevin durant could actually see what these people look like did they ever actually a uh, contact you know like <laughs> 
Big Shot Rick, 47. <laughs> Joe, from in, Portola. <laughs> Joe, Joe from Portola, I think Steve said. Um, I, I, they, they didn't do it, and frankly, it was a mistake. I mean, I think they should have tried it out. I, I think, uh, <laughs> Steve should have tried it out, uh, probably when things were worst. Why not? Why not? Just right after the Draymond KD fight, bring it, bring in some, some random Twitter people and see how they'll handle it. But I think that, you know, he, he means that kind of whimsically, but in a way that's also very Steve Kerr. It's this mm-hmm. idea of, okay, how can we put another spin on this? Um, and make this fresh and reframe how the how the players are thinking about it. Well, just off of Kura, there's a you know I love the part where you are, you you go down. It sounds like an, and uh, are strolling around the neighborhood, you know, having a conversation um, with him. Is is he your favorite person in this book? A favorite you know person with the Warriors to talk to? Is there someone else that you you enjoy? I mean, I'm sure he's on the short list. He's he's obviously um, such a and he's got such an insightful personality and just that he's got an interesting way of he looks at life um is there is it him is it somebody else like who's your favorite person to interview with no offense to steve uh, i i enjoy me some andre Godala. Okay. I, I, mm. I i just i never know what's gonna happen steve i have an idea okay. i have an idea of what he might say where he's going with it uh andre it's it's like a game i i don't and i don't even know how to win i don't even know what the rules are <laughs> it's like i just West know World. the <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very Westworld. By the way, Andre Godala, huge Westworld fan. Oh. Uh, he is a huge yeah, Westworld I'm, I'm fan. I'm not surprised. I can see you two having uh, the perfect relationship because, like you're saying, you don't know with Godala. I had to talk to him once on camera, and I was terrified for the entire day. And then he said, like, the nicest thing anybody has ever said to me on camera. So I was like, okay, I guess I like Andre Iguodala now. But you don't know because, like, the way you describe it, it's like you don't know if the joke he's making to you is even a joke. Yeah, you don't. You don't. It's cryptic, and then there are moments of sincerity, but you don't totally know if there are moments of sincerity. Um, he came back in a Miami Heat uniform this season, and I didn't even know what to expect, but he was very nice. <laughs> it was very nice to see him again, and he'll have these moments of real profundity and deep cynicism, and at the same time, he's totally pure. In many ways, I think he's he's the heart of the book because he's incredibly cynical, as cynical as the NBA world is, and it's something he can see, and yet he's also very pure, and he wants to make the right basketball play in the moment at all times, and he's chasing that high of when everything's clicking and going right. So um, I think he's he's probably my favorite guy to interview. My favorite guy to write about, though, is Joe Lacob. Joe Lacob is a pro wrestling character that just happens <laughs> to exist in real life, and I enjoy the hell... I just enjoy the hell out of Joe Lacob, the bombast, the Gavin Belson-esque manner. Um, he's just, it lends itself to writing, anything with Lacob. You talk about uh, Andre Iguodala. There's a passage there where where it's just after that incident where Kevin Durant calls you out at the press conference and then Iggy calls you to the back room, the sort of place that no reporter's ever allowed to talk to you about that. And he just sort of says, he, he frames it, uses the analogy of like, you know, sometimes even if you haven't done anything wrong, you just apologize to your wife if you're having a bit of a bad moment or whatever. That to me sounded almost like Iggy Dollar was saying, Kevin Durant's in such a bad mood because of that article. You know, he's bringing that into the locker room. If you can maybe apologize, even though you say throughout, like I didn't do anything wrong, why should I apologize? But it was almost like Eagle Dollar was saying to you, we need you to kind of get him out of this bad mood. And the only way he's going to do it is if you apologize. Is that accurate? 
Um, again, it's very difficult to know what is behind any what is behind any Andre Godala thing. Um, but yeah, I think that's a plausible read on it. Yeah. Um, my favorite part of that uh, was just seeing Demarcus Cousins and Demarcus Cousins going, you know, you've got some apologizing to do, and I, and I say, well, how do I? How do I how do I apologize if I didn't if I think that I didn't do anything wrong and Cousins goes shit that's for you to figure out <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like some apologizing experts over there in Golden State yeah, you just got to figure it out and things it. will be fine well, I think I think they conflated their job for my job a little bit because there is this sense when you're a player that players just have the most status in the world and if a player is mad at the media, uh, then that media person is totally screwed. Um, and I just didn't, I didn't totally see it that way. I just thought it as, well, you know, it'd be good if Kevin was on great terms with me, but if he's on bad terms with me, then that's fine too. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not so important, but I think the player view of the world is very player centric. So I think it made sense in how they see things. Yeah. Was there, um, what was your favorite chapter? To write, Ethan? I kind of, you know, I like Sneaker Wars. I, 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 love, right. I love the sneaker stuff. Um, it's just such a, that's the chapter where I feel like I'm, I mean, you guys know about all this stuff, but for a lot of basketball fans, I feel like I'm, I'm telling them about a world that they just never conceived of. And I'm flipping the paradigm a bit where who are these guys really working for? Right. You know, who's the real employer? Mm-hmm. Is it the sneaker company? Is it the, is it the team? Um, as much as some of the stuff uh, in, let's say, the Kevin Durant chapter um, is really interesting and lends itself for excerpts, uh, it's just uncomfortable to put that all out there because I'm a character in it, and so it's <laughs> kind of harder. Yeah. That's almost harder to write in a way versus the uh, the Nike Under Armour stuff. When did you start formulating the idea of writing this book? Um, I'd been approached... God, I can't even remember when I was initially approached to write a book. I've been approached to write books in the past about the Warriors when they were on the up and up, and mm-hmm. um, I just wasn't so interested in doing it um, because when everything's great, it's it's really just easy to appreciate on its own. Just the television product is great. Mm-hmm. I mean, how much? I mean, I can help with articles here and there, and like, oh my God, Steph hits shots from so far away. Right. Um, I can I can do all that, but we're drawn in the literary sense. Whether it's the last dance, you know, it's the last dance, not the first dance that we're into. Um, Shaq and Kobe's breakup and, you know, the Portland Trailblazers dissolution is covered in breaks breaks of the game. It, it's just more literary. So um, when I had agreed to do something with the Warriors and I was thinking about something about the basketball underworld um, involving agents and sneakers and everything else. But then once I knew that, that Kevin was leaving, or at least had a very solid indication, I talked to the publisher, I think early that season, and we said, okay, we're going to go in this direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I started That's when I started writing the book and keeping tabs on that particular situation. And lo and behold, uh, Kevin Rant left. <laughs> <laughs> What's your relationship with Draymond Green like these days? Because I remember, um, I guess it was two seasons ago, you wrote that article that the Warriors have a Draymond Green problem. And he didn't like that. And, and in fact, uh, from what I saw, even some within the Warriors didn't like that. So when you're going about a story that involves him again here, you know, is he standoffish with you? Does he give you much or no. is it uh, no? No, he's he's been really cordial. Um, we've talked about that story. I didn't love everything in that story. 
Um, it was God. When was it? Was it a half decade ago that it came out? Um, wow. And it, it's <laughs> was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, wasn't half... it like two months ago? Oh, like, well, yeah. <laughs> well, ESPN. Well, ESPN actually ran it. I think a few weeks ago because they were going oh. through the quarantine coverage, and uh, and they and they ran that story on their front page, which was very. <laughs> It's very wow. strange. I remember reading that. I was saying, hey, "Is Draymond gonna get mad at me all over again?" Like, gonna, <laughs> you know, better over apologize. <laughs> I got, I got up, I, shit. I got some apologizing to do. Um, no, it's it's something that um, you know. Over the years, we've had we've had many conversations, and I didn't like everything in that story. And I think we were both just different people, and now our fathers and. Um, I think uh, with with Draymond, it's a it's a cordial relationship, and frankly, it's a credit to him. I mean, he would have been well within his rights to just tell me to fuck off and and just be a total asshole to me. That would have made complete sense, but that that isn't really how he handled it. Um, and I think that you know, it's, uh, hey, hey, I'm not complaining. It's uh, <laughs> this is it was it was nice. It was a kindness, I would say, considering. Right. It definitely feels like he knows he has to play the media game and that his his point of view is going to get out there through other people. So I, I, I thought he's just always been – I mean, sure, certainly he has been confrontational at times, but he also is going to be a guy who's working in media when it's all said and done. So he understands yeah. the value of it. Yeah. On the flip side, yeah, Clay I, Thompson, there's not much Clay in this book. You did call him Keanu Reeves with a jump shot, which is basically <laughs> the perfect description of Clay Thompson. <laughs> Is it just nobody worried about Clay Thompson at any time? They're like, yeah, he'll be fine with whatever. Yeah, I think I think he'll be fine with whatever. There are certain stories that he hasn't liked when it gets out there. I remember, I, I remember we were in Atlanta, and there was some TMZ story where he was with multiple women uh, getting into a car outside an L.A. nightclub, and he was just complaining to me, and he was just saying – no, that's like my that's my cousin. <laughs> like he gets mad about strange things. <laughs> just strange. See, that's the clay voice in my yeah, head. Yeah, wow. <laughs> a little audiobook content right here. Yeah, yeah. Clay clay to me is Napoleon dynamite-ish. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that's what his voice actually sounds like, but just the way he is with Michael Thompson is so uh, just teenage, uh, just teenage annoyance, you know, <laughs> where I, I, like Michael Thompson will be sitting in his, in his chair in the locker room and the Lakers are in town and Clay will walk and look, dad, get out of here. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> um, you know, in a way Clay is the thing that Kevin Durant doesn't know how to be yeah. Clay doesn't think at all about who loves him or who hates him or any of that. He's barely aware of any of it. Um, everything he does accidentally or intentionally, everybody loves. Um, <laughs> if he shows up an hour late to practice, everybody will go like, Oh, that's our clay. Classic you know, clay. You know, basically, you know, clay, I hadn't thought about this, but clay is, is Homer Simpson and KD is Frank Grimes. In, yeah. in the <laughs> It's so perfect. It's so perfect. Was there anything, I mean, maybe it is another Clay story or something else that you just couldn't fit into the book uh, that, you know, was left on the uh, editing room floor that you sort of wish maybe got in? Um, Okay, so there was something that wasn't so much cut, but I wish I could could get it in there. You know, in a way, I wanted to talk a little bit more about some of what these guys do get from it because it is a book that – 
is a lot of the NBA sadness, right? Which is real. Mm-hmm. You know, we're 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 about to watch. Uh, you know, we're watching the Last Dance right now, and uh, Scottie Pippen doesn't seem so happy mm-hmm. having won five championships. Uh, in fact, he seems the opposite of happy right now. So yeah. that's real. But they do get something out of it, and. Ron Adams, I remember, was saying to Sean Livingston that, look, all that matters is years from now, I'm going to see you and you're going to see me and we're both going to smile because we had these, you know, it's a very, uh, you know, maybe the maybe the whole point was the friends we made along the way or whatever the cliche is. <laughs> but um, the one that I would love to have been able to get in there is another Andre Godala quote, which uh, Bomani Jones had read my book and he was talking about it with Andre, who had had his own Warriors book, and said, is it true that winning doesn't actually uh, make you happy, uh, make you happy or, or, or get, get happiness for you guys? And Andre said, it is true. It's true, but you miss it. And I, I wish that I had been able to ask Andre about that before the book came out. And that, you know, that, that idea of, yeah, you're all so miserable on this particular part of the journey and want it to end. But when it, when it ends, I mean, you, you look back and it's, you know, you, you now have this perspective of you're not in the spotlight anymore um, and things aren't so great on the other side. So I wish I had been able to fit that into the book. I think you nailed it when you said that this is a story of ultimate success. It's also a story of why ultimate success cannot sustain. It's crazy to read this book and then have the last dance come out and just see the way that both dynasties ended. It seems... Like, it's impossible for a dynasty to have a drama-free ending. I mean, the Bulls won a championship in there last year, and it was super drama-filled. They effectively end by suicide. I mean, that's what's crazy about it. It's at a certain point, um, everybody goes, we we don't like doing this anymore. (laughs) 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 Like, look, the difference between no championships and one championship is massive. Between four and five, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's what's kind of interesting, though. You know, when you look at the San Antonio Spurs, they've been so competitive for so long, uh, but they've kept those three core together, you know, Timmy, Manu, and, and Tony Parker, and, of course, Popovich. But they never went really, you know, they never went back to back. They sort of always spread their championships out. I mean, I wonder if that has any impact at all. You know, the fact that the Warriors sort of binged on their championships so much and, and they brought in Kevin Durant. I wonder if that sort of dynamic is just what's different about, uh, you know, someone like the Spurs. In a different reality, if they don't bring on Kevin Durant, I think that they could have had a less dominant but more sustainable path. Um, And he was the guy who made the inflection point higher but made the long-term, you know, the long-term idea of this uh, just not long-term. And, you know, I think Bob Myers is somebody who has that Spurs want. He wants yeah. to have a Spurs-esque mm-hmm. run. And Joe Lacob wants to have a dynasty that lasts as long as the Spurs, which is completely <laughs> impossible. Talking about people who are probably going to read it, do you think Steve Ballmer will have any issue with how you described his uh, his appearance and how he walks and how he looks? Oh, talk about something that... Um, <laughs> That I might have, I wish I could put back in the book. I was on some podcast we were talking about maybe the maybe the condor in a way is, is supposed to be a subliminal <laughs> reminder of who owns the team. That's exactly uh, what I thought of when I read that part, Nathan. Exactly. I swear to God. I wish I could have put it in there. I think I'm depicting. You know, Steve Ballmer is pretty alpha. You know. Yeah. But you never know. You never know how people might 
might react to whatever their portrayal is. But he said, it, "Yeah, he was like a bald eagle stuffed into a, uh, a sh- <laughs> <laughs> Lee loves it. He can't even get it out. I I actually like I enjoyed this book, Ethan. I thought it was very well written. You know, great information, great storytelling. But that was the part where I actually like <laughs> laughed out loud because you talk about how he walks and his head bobs forward like a pigeon. Uh, you know, <laughs> but but it isn't it isn't it isn't nasty in any way. You know, it's just that is the way he is, and he's by the side and he's cheering and screaming picture, and yelling yeah, yeah. yeah um, he, but, uh, he, he's quite avian and yeah. you know impre- <laughs> and, but imposing you know imposing yeah. and impressive he's a big dude and yeah. so yeah just I, I wanted to capture some of those little scenes of the playoffs just the the, the ridiculous spectacle of it all. And, you know, around that time I was keeping a little diary of just stuff I noticed and the bomber stuff is that stuff I wrote down, just watching him walk around and I was like, okay, I want to, I want to slide this into the book just because it, it's amusing to me. Well, I only have, um, I got one more question too. And, and like Lee said, I think you can tell we're big fans of the book, the victory machine. Everybody should go Thank get you. it, go read it. We love it. Were you watching Jurassic park while you were writing this book? Um, I just love Jurassic Park. Okay, because there were like two Jurassic Park references, were there not? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I don't know if I was watching it. I just think that Jurassic Park is so filled with phrases and metaphors and... Um, it's, it's always, it's always in the front of my mind, Jurassic Park is. So, uh, yeah, I think I used Life Will Find a Way at some point. I can't remember what the other one. The other one was was about the, the, um, dinosaur that doesn't want to feed. It wants to hunt. Yes, yes, yes. T-Rex Yeah, because I got to the second Jurassic Park reference and I was like, hold on, is that the second one in this book? This is incredible. Yeah, well, you know, in this moment of 1990s nostalgia that we're now in with The Last Dance, it only makes sense to, uh, look even, look even harder at Jurassic Park but for whatever reason um, even if I don't even believe some of the central premise of Jurassic Park that if we recreate dinosaurs something will go terribly wrong and will eat us all like I feel like if we got the science to do it I feel like we could figure it out I, I don't know I'm just throwing that out there I that's don't know what they thought believe- too Ethan <laughs> that's what I just want JD to now end this podcast with the <laughs> oh I love it Oh God, that one's so great. The John Williams soundtrack in Jurassic it's Park, you know, the dun 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 dun. It's so good. It's incredible. Is it John Williams' best work? I would say so. Although wow. Indiana Jones is up there. Mm. Oh, now you're talking JD's language. <laughs> yeah. Superman's up there too. Everybody yeah, forgets yeah, about yeah. Superman. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a ooh, that's a, that's a pretty good one. That's a deep cut right there. Um, yeah, greatest movie composer ever, John Williams. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Jurassic Park, uh, it's great, great metaphors for life strewn throughout that particular movie and also strewn throughout that particular movie, uh, Samuel L. Jackson's Limbs. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we will call it. Go get the book. It's called The Victory Machine. It is incredible. It is on Amazon, just like Jurassic Park, so you could have those delivered as a two-pack without even leaving your house. You won't be disappointed. Ethan, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day. Thanks for having me, guys. This is great. You guys can follow Ethan on social media, at Sherwood Strauss. You can read him and listen to his podcast, House of Strauss, on The Athletic. If you're not a subscriber yet, get it together and enjoy a 90-day free trial at theathletic.com slash nodunks. And you can follow No Dunks everywhere on social media, at nodunksinc, I-N-C, right there. We'll be back tomorrow on Thursday with a new episode of No Buffs. Ethan, are you a survivor guy? Uh, No. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, now is a good time to get in. <laughs> Be well, everybody. Embrace the victory machine, people.